Suitcase is brought to you by Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, and Al Samudge. An ex-American intelligence officer suspected of treason, operating here without a license and carrying a gun. Hello and welcome to the third episode of ITC Entertain the World podcast. If you haven't guessed by the opening music, today we're talking about Man in a Suitcase. I'm joined, as per usual, by my co-host, Rodney Marshall. Hi, Rodney. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Jess. Great. And we're also joined today by Al Samooch, who I have known for about 30-odd years, and I know him affectionately as Smudge. Hi, Smudge. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. If uh, you want me to sort of give my credentials for this broadcast, I got into Man in a Suitcase in the 80s with the Central Television Repeats, a long time ago now, and I was so hooked by it that I went on to find out more, did some private research, interviewed people like Sidney Cole, Kevin Lafan, talked to Freddie Francis, that sort of thing. Brilliant. Okay. So for me, Man in a Suitcase is where ITC really captures that swinging 60s moment in this series, unlike any other series, because the series prior to this were mostly in black and white, and I don't think they got it. The colour series that was being made at the time the Baron just didn't kind of get it in the same way. And any series post uh, Man in a Suitcase is missed it, really. It's gone into sort of the summer of love and hippiedom, which is fine. But for me, this really captures that sort of 1966 World Cup win swinging London. You know, McGill goes to West Hampstead. He goes to Kensington. He's in the cool parts of London. But also, we've got a, a really great, an interesting lead character in McGill. We don't know his first name. There are so many layers to McGill. And we should talk about Richard Bradford, obviously. I just happen to think it's got grit, intrigue, lovely things going on with relationships. And sometimes that he gets involved with women and other times he doesn't. But also, you know, some of the relationships he has with the people he's working for are really frosty. So very interesting yeah, no, I mean, very much so. And I think we we see both sides of swinging London. There is the glamorous side that we see. I mean, you've mentioned sort of, you know, Hampstead, Kensington, uh, you know, places like, uh, I think it's Lincoln's Inn in Burden of Proof. You've got sort of uh, the, the embankment, you've got restaurants along the River Thames. Uh, you've got some, it really does capture the positive, exclusive side of West London, there is also the darker side of the swinging, you know, swinging London, you know, that line from the Rolling Stones album Aftermath, where they say the pursuit of happiness just seems a bore. And a lot of the young women in Men in a Suitcase fit into that. You know, they're attractive, they're young, they're intelligent, but they seem to be completely bored by the whole sort of scene. So I think we, we get the vibrant swinging London and we get 
the other side, which, you know, is the paradox of men in a suitcase, isn't it, in a way? Sorry, we certainly do. I mean, we get um, in variation. I think it's been part one as we're doing the stock footage shots. You see that the Beatles are showing the Hard Day's Night at uh, the London Pavilion. And in Who's Mad Now, I think it is, we get the location from the Hard, day, hard Day's Night, the pub that was used. You can't get more swinging than the Beatles. Absolutely, yeah. So this is one of the first shows that ITC make in colour. We should probably rewind right to the start of this, where the series outline was devised by Richard Harris and Dennis Spooner. Now, I did a DVD commentary with Richard Harris for The Winged Avenger some years ago, and we sort of went off topic and talked about Man in a Suitcase a little I'd just like to play you a little clip of what Richard said in that DVD commentary. We wrote the format for Man in a Suitcase on one piece of paper, took it into Lou Gray. He read it and said, I'll like it, I'll do it. And that was what doing business with Lou Gray was like. And the series went off. They, of course, employed an American script editor who rejected every idea that Dennis and I put up. Uh, we never got a script off the ground. So there you have it, a single sheet of paper presented to Lou Grade. How great is Lou Grade just to say, yeah, that's great, we'll do that, we'll make that show. We've talked about this before, where it would take, say, 10 years to get Life on Mars off the ground. But this is like a snap decision. It's like, yep, we can make that, let's do that. And also the, the thing there is it was called McGill. And obviously it developed and changed. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the great things about Lou Grade is that, you know, I think he trusted the gut instinct. He'd been over to the States a number of times. And I'm sure, as, we, as we've said in previous weeks, when he saw what worked over there, he had sort of half a mind on, well, I think we could do something similar. And I guess in a way, the man in a suitcase is different, isn't it? In that we'd reached a point where I think the American um, you know, companies had said, to ITC, we're not taking anything else in black and white. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's not essentially just a decision made in the UK, because obviously Man in a Suitcase will be seen in black and white, unfortunately, by the original um, viewers in, in the UK. But I do think it just would not have worked in black and white. We talked about already the swinging London, that vibrancy, it needs colour, just as Gideon's Way needs the bleakness of black and white, doesn't it? I, I think we come back to, uh, if I can come back a few years, they were interviewing Christopher Lee about the success of Hammer films. And I think there's a common factor here because the comment Christopher made was you had Sir James Carreras in charge and essentially Sir James was a showman. He was there. He, he, was, he was a Barnum and Bailey sort of bunk and booth barker, essentially. He sold stuff. And this is what Lou Gray did. He was a showman. He sta he'd started out on the halls doing his um, Charleston act and he had his theatrical agency. He kind of knew what the public wanted and he had a strong gut instinct like he did with the prisoner. Uh, so the fact that he sort of signed this off on one sheet of A4 is no major surprise really. And the point is that he, like you say, he'd been to the States, he'd sold series in already. He knew that in, the US they were showing series in color and he had to make that move and like you say he was probably partly driven by uh, the US networks to guarantee a, a future sale but that I think is very much to 
our benefit as we are watching these in in later years but you know, also because they were made on 35 millimeter film they still exist there's the whole thing about 60s tv series being made and most being made on videotape have sadly been lost so yeah, we're, we're on to a winner here that lose back this. There is also another remarkable part to that. Sorry to interrupt, Jazz. I was just thinking of the fact that uh, he sold it to the States without him even having seen a pilot. And having no, no star in mind. And that is remarkable because, you know, as Smudge has said about his, his ability as a salesman, you've got to be one hell of a good salesman to sell a series to another country without them knowing really anything about it other than a sheet of A4 paper. Mm, there, was a, there was a lot of trust there. There was a hell of a lot of trust there between him and America. And, and so he just literally sold them a package. And he did that with a lot of his shows, didn't he? What do you think about the idea that this was originally called McGill? Mm. And Richard Harrison is... Um, commentary said to me that McGill was the name of the Arsenal left back and he said that him and Dennis Spooner were huge Arsenal fans and used to go and watch Arsenal left uh, Arsenal every week and their favorite player was the left back whose name was McGill hence that's where the name came from I think man in a suitcase personally is a much better title because when I think of the word McGill I kind of think of MacGyver and I know these shows are later do you know what I mean and and McCall is it in the equalizer I just think it's it needs to change <clears throat> and the change makes it far more quirky and left field mm-hmm. i mean in fact i mean andrew pixley's lovely book on men in a suitcase points out even within the mcgill thing there were two jimmy mcgills who played for arsenal and one had been quite a controversial figure and he'd been basically kicked out and then did the rounds going to play for chester and crew etc and in a weird way that almost fits in with our mcgill doesn't it mm. who's who's had to leave I mean, i'm not going to make too much of that i don't think it's a title as you say it's completely unimaginative it's just a name man in a suitcase it's great you know and it does actually say an awful lot about this nomadic character who doesn't have a home does he yeah, it's got the double edge from the pilot episode, which we'll come on to later, no doubt. And the actual, as you say, the traveling workman with a gun. I much prefer Man in a Suitcase, I must admit. I mean, like you say, it's got that impression of being a bit of a nomad. And that's really what I like about this show. I mean, we've talked about John Drake being in the half hours a little bit of a nomad. But I think McGill is the ultimate nomad stroke anti-hero for ITC he is very much down on his luck and he's an alien in effect in a foreign country he's in a bit like Bradford there's a lovely sort of mirror thing going on here with Bradford himself being a new actor coming into this British way of making films finding it difficult that's why I think there's a lot of Bradford in McGill himself yeah I'd agree uh, I mean, he's, he's a, a young man, very much new to the industry, certainly new to this so-called star status. He's in a different country. He's in a culture he doesn't understand, really. He's pretty much isolated in his house in Hampstead. He's, he's working so hard. And he comes to an acting culture, which is totally different from what he's trying to achieve. And so, as such, he becomes a bit of a Marmite figure to not only his fellow actors, but to some of the crews because of what he's, what he's trying to do. I think it's nicely illustrated by a little scene in Web with Four Spiders. When he's on the train, he's going up to Manchester, 
and you've got this quite genteel couple having a packed lunch opposite him, quite a sort of high tea thing, opposite him in the railway carriage. I don't think he gets that. He just looks and he gives a wry smile. And I, th I think that sort of slightly encapsulates the culture clash for me. Well, as that's, it almost becomes a running leitmotif the number of times in the series. He's given a cup of tea and is disgusted. I remember in, in All That Glitters, when they've all been out looking for this little boy and they go back into, I think it's the church or the village hall and there's tea in there and it's one of a number of times. It's sort of like, why on earth do you people drink this? And that sort of <laughs> does fit in, doesn't it, with, with what you're both saying about the fact that he, he doesn't fit in, as, of course, Bradford didn't fit in. And, and Richard then worked on that, essentially, because of his method acting style when he came to people who were going to be, quote, the baddies in his episodes. He used the method. He steered clear of, clear of them. He isolated himself from particular actors just so he could get that proper response when it came to the screen time. And I think from, from what various directors have said, and, and in fact, a lot of directors who worked on that show were very fond of him. I know from what I've read from people like Robert Tronson, Freddie Francis, Peter mm -hmm. Duffel, they all enjoyed working with him. Mm -hmm. But they did all say he had this, you, you weren't quite sure what he was going to do. Was he going to break into a big smile? Would he actually almost a leap at Sid Cole? Uh, and, and that comes over on screen, doesn't it? You yes. don't quite know. You're thinking, oh, how is he going to react here? And that unpredictability, I find actually part of his magnetic personality, both actor and character. Yes, the, the drama is all important to him. He wants to make this character real. He's, he's said in various interviews how hard he tried. He wanted to make it the best. I just wanted to do the most real, honest portrayal of a guy and to do things that hadn't been seen before on television. I really wanted to do that with all my heart and soul. There were certain players he did get along with. Um, and if you remember from Andrew's book, the story about the, the five-minute shoot that Charlie Crichton did on The Whisper, that was Colin Blakely. And when I was talking to Sid, he remembered that distinctly. He said, I'd gone down to the floor and there was, there was Colin and they were arguing the toss, for want of a better phrase, about the character motivation. And he said, if you look at the way Colin performed, that was essentially the method before the method. Some people were here were doing it, but they weren't following the Strasbourg school. I was going to say that actually, when you look at Bradford on screen, he's electric, isn't he? He's dynamic. There is a real edge to him in, in virtually every episode, mm. to everything he does. You know, and like you say about making it real, he's gone on record, you know, in interviews and said that, you know, he was tricky, but that's because he wanted the best for this show. He really wanted it to be not your usual sort of ITC fare, or he wanted it to be so much better than anything had been previous and you know credit to him for that you know i know he was new to the industry i got to admire him for that i have to say when i when i met him for that day uh, in los angeles and i worked with him for a whole day we did two commentaries and we did a filmed interview but we spent the whole day together he was so like he is on screen if you know what i mean he went from being mumbly like this to being like hi you know and enthusiastic and then he was breaking out in a sweat and then he was really intense 
and then suddenly he'd smile and relax. He was quite a complex character in real life. Mm-hmm. So I think what he's done in his portrayal of McGill is bring so much of that into that character. Well, I mean, he's got layers, hasn't he? And I'm now talking about the character rather than Bradford, but I'm sure Bradford did as well. But that character has, I can't think of another protagonist in a television series with more layers. Because the minute you think you've got to know each McGill, there's another one. And uh, and I do think he has a moral compass. Yeah, sometimes he allows money to take him off that. But for the majority of the time, clients get the McGill they deserve. To the point where, of course, you know, in The Whisper, you know, one of the great, I think, ITC episodes in any show, he ends up actually knocking his client unconscious. At the same time, how gentle is he with Felicity Kendall's character in The Blind Spot? So I do think you get the, you know, you get the McGill you deserve. I would come back on that and I would take slight issue with the thing about money, because I think in some respects, money funds his lifestyle and he seems to be a driven man and we get no better example than that than variation where he literally looks up, looks up Max to chase the million. But in other, other circumstances, as you say, you get the McGill you deserve. I think he uses money as a weapon because it's the only thing some of his more amoral clients understand. I think he hits them in the pocket. I think it's from somebody loses, somebody wins. And he uses that sort of sliding scale of fees to think, oh, you know, okay, you're a no good. You're an amoral person. I'm going to hit you where it hurts. And he, and he ups the fees. And, and I think he, he does use it in that way to, as you say, give them the service they deserve. Yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. The only thing I would say is you said fund his lifestyle. What lifestyle? He drives a Hillman imp and, and tends to live in really sort of <laughs> grubby, sort of uh, almost guest houses, doesn't he? I mean, he. I think, I think Bradford said somewhere in Andrew Pixley's book, what did McGill do with all that money? Because sometimes mm. he's on quite good money. But he doesn't really seem to spend the money on much, does he? Yeah, but that's, that's the thing. I mean, we know, as, as Jazz pointed out, we know so very little about him. There could yeah. be a whole raft of stuff behind him that we're missing, that the money goes to. He could have kids in every state that he's paying our money for in America. We don't know. So I suppose we should say that Bradford was um, seen, I believe, by Lou Grade when he appeared in The Chase movie with Marlon Brando and that's how uh, Bradford ended up being cast um, in the lead role. The production crew with this is quite an interesting one because you mentioned Sidney Cole there. This is kind of where Danger Man ends and ITC the crew split into two. Some go with McGowan to the prisoner, the rest kind of stay with Sidney Cole and do Man in a Suitcase. So they're based at Pinewood Sid obviously was it must have been involved with the recruitment of the American script editor Stanley R. Greenberg. I think he is the man who basically is responsible for ripping up the sheet of paper with the series outline that Harris and Spooner had done. Yep. And basically saying, We're not going to do any of that, we're going to do it my way, which I think obviously annoyed very much. Richard Harris and Dennis Spooner because they weren't offered any scripts. They weren't offered anything. In, in fact, Richard said, basically, we just gave the bit of paper and that was it. We never heard of anything again. They were on yep. a small percentage. Sidney Coles spoke very warmly of him. 
and yeah. said, you know, really, really got on with him. He said that there were issues between Stanley Greenberg and some of the scriptwriters. Mm -hmm. But certainly, I think Sidney Cole, didn't he smudge, say that he actually had a good relationship? Yeah, if I, if I can bring you back on that one. I don't actually think Sid had, from talking to Sid, I don't think he had a direct input on bringing Stanley in. It was a recommendation from ITC America via Lou. But yes, Sid did say he got on very well with Stanley, so much so that some years later, he and his wife spent holidays at Stanley's home on the sea in Massachusetts. He said it was very nice. Kevin Laffan told me that he respected Stan as a script editor. He said he was a writer's writer. He understood writers and he was very proactive and he was easy to get on with in terms of writing. The brief was fairly loose because, because he said the last thing you want as a writer is too constricting a brief. He had his interview with Stan for the first episode, Essay in Evil. And he said, we, we had a loose brief. I thought the concept, apart from the suitcase angle, was a bit mundane. But other than that, he gave me the chance to go away and play. I chose the mine scenario because it was something novel. It had never been done. And it gave us a chance to exploit the stock footage Scotland locations. And then on the opposite side of the coin, when Jan Breed came in as script editor later for Kevin's second story, he said he was a bit of a, a fussy person, a particular person, difficult to get on with. And Kevin, Kevin knew Stanley had had issues with some of the screenwriters, but for the most part, they rumbled on. But he said with Jan Reed, he was a, a bit of a, a nitpicker who couldn't tell a, a bad line from a good character. Yeah, I can only really talk from the experience I had of knowing Philip Broadley and from what he said to me was where he found writing for Danger Man an absolute pleasure because he would go off to France and meet Ralph Smart and they'd have a lovely lunch and discuss his latest idea and it was always like oh I'm just going to set what story in Rome and it'd be like Ralph would say yeah fine off they go and do it whereas um, he found writing for not Sidney Cole I don't think but I think the production not as pleasurable but then you know, one script writer's different from another, isn't it? Exactly. I, th I think way. the thing is, Stanley Greenberg was quite a hard taskmaster. I, I think that he got the script writers in there and he wanted to go through every single line. At, at the end of two or three hours, he might not change many, but mm. I think probably as a writer, maybe that got became frustrating. But I mean, obviously, one of the things that Richard Bradford is most critical of about Men in a Suitcase was the scripts. I didn't want it to be less than it could be, and we had terrible scripts. I think we cycled scripts even, I don't know. Just knew they weren't very good. Well, they were writing Mickey Spillane, and I wanted to play someone else. They were writing this wisecracking, detective-like person, and, you know, Sam Spade, all those guys. I just didn't want to, I wanted it to be different. I just wanted it, I wanted them to be more sensitive, more aware, more human, more... when I see the quality of some of the script writers, and I'd include Philip Broadley in there and Edmund Ward, I think there are at least 22, if not 23, really good scripts out of the 30. I'm going to shout up for Stanley Greenberg here, because I think he's one of the better dialogue writers in the series. Some of the stuff he did, like in Variations, where you've got the relationship with McGill and Tycho, some of the dialogue in that is brilliant. And their words that allow the actors to play naturally and it comes across really really well i think he's one of the better dialogue writers for the show 
he, he he arrived with a good pedigree, didn't he? I mean, mm -hmm. in many ways, he's the writer who who was sold to Richard Bradford. I mean, I think Richard Bradford was expecting two two writers to come over, and only one came. And um, I know there was some animosity between them, but they I guess they were from two very different backgrounds in the states. But no, I agree. And I mean, Man from the Dead, you know, it, it's a great script. I mean, just look at the end game in Man from the Dead, that little piece in the stadium where McGill finally gets to talk properly to Harry. And you've got that constant repetition of yes, up, um, offset against mm -hmm. the rising scale of tension and anger in McGill. Mm -hmm. That is a brilliant bit of writing and a lovely bit of playing by John Barry. Yeah, I was just going to quickly say there's a funny story about that episode with that end game where uh, Lou Grade apparently had written a, a script for him to say, you know, like, uh, I'm just this American ex-CIA agent. And Bradford like, ripped it up and said, you can forget that. I'm not doing any of that. And it works better that, in fact, he doesn't say anything. He just sort of stumbles off being beaten and bruised and battered. Well, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Less is more. But if you come through, if you come through the, the early production order episodes, that sort of CIA exposition is repeated quite often anyway. And, and it's just so, so that people can, people who've missed the first two obviously can just dip in or slot in. But to come back to the actual genesis of the thing, Jazz, essentially Sid told me it was sold to him as a package. He had very little input. It was, it was like he was the allocated producer. He was on some sort of contract when Danger Man ground to a halt quickly. And then somebody flipped this out and said, here, you've got this. I asked him because they were the first production to use the new multi-purpose facilities on, at Pinewood on J&K. Those are the first two stages that had been built for dual use, film or TV. And I asked him how that would fix, was fixed up. And he said, oh, everything was done through the ATV organization, basically Cumberland House or wherever. They would just give you a package. They would book the studio time, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Sid was essentially just seen as a safe pair of hands. How right that is, because if you do look at The Prisoner, that was in Magoo's hands. And what a bloody mess that ended up as, you know? Mm. It, and it, they couldn't decide if they had seven episodes, 11 episodes, 17 episodes kind of thing. The episodes were overrunning. He wanted to do everything. You know, he was a control freak. Whereas Sid Cole would, like you say, safe pair of hands. Right, we've got nine or ten days to make this. We'll make it. Right, we've made that one. On to the next one. What's the next script in the meantime? When's this one coming in? Who's directing that one? There was a negative about that, though, because Sid was very much a gentleman and he, he didn't like conflict on the floor. So he, he, did, he was a bit laissez-faire. And one of the big problems with the first transmission batch was the fact that Lionel Baines was such a slow lighting cameraman. This is one of the elements that got um, on Richard's nerves, I believe. There are negatives in terms of how, how the show was managed. It, uh, yes, it wasn't The Prisoner, but speed was an issue. And when, yeah, we I mean, say about, when we say about the prisoner almost, I mean, Man in a Suitcase is almost a forgotten twin, isn't it? And, and mm -hmm. Robert Sellers speaks, I think, very well about this in his chapter, Ghosts in the Machine, which covers the two of them. There are so many things that they have in common, particularly yep. in terms of personnel. But yep. also, I mean, the, the characters to a certain extent, you know, they are both ghosts in the machine. They think that they should be able to sort of exist independently from the machine and find that they can't. 
everything from the music, the incidental music, the same person casting. Yeah. Quite a few of the number twos end up playing major roles in Men in a Suitcase episodes. I think there are directors that are even crossover, aren't there? Yeah. Don Chaffee uh, le- leaves the prisoner and does Pat Jackson go over to the prisoner? There are very much similarities. There are even very similar scripts, uh, plot lines. There's, um, to me, there's a Checkmate episode of Man in a Suitcase. There's almost a Girl Who Was Death episode of Man in a Suitcase. And of course, obviously, as you say, Rodney, the music gets so prisoner-esque at times, uh, particularly towards the end of Day of Execution. Well, I mean, I mean Brainwash has got elements that are prisoner-esque, hasn't it, you know, mm-hmm. at, at times? Yeah. Um, I just think, it, you know... It, it, it's fascinating because it does become the forgotten twin. When you look at the, the reviews at the time of the show, no, I haven't seen any TV critics who seem to warm to Bradford's performance, which I find amazing. You mentioned casting, so I've got two points on casting. Firstly, Rose Tobias Shaw, casting director. She loathed Richard for whatever reason. I tried to engage with her twice. Twice she came back very badly. She said it was possibly the worst professional experience of her life. I don't know if she did it on purpose, she just didn't like me. I heard she called me that no talent son of a bitch. So. And on the other side, to include a comment about casting, again, back to my chat with Kevin Laffin, he said he was not happy with how his first script came out. I thought Richard Bradford was as wooden as a clothes peg, and so did casting. I mean, when I was talking to Sid again, we were talking about Richard himself. Sid agreed that a lot of the grittier approach came from Richard. He said, although he wasn't at that point an actor of the status that could dictate everything, all this stuff about changing dialogue and whatever, he did have a positive input. On the other side, he said he thought method acting was somewhat masochistic, because when he, when he went to Rush's, he said that uh, Richard always seemed to be enormously enjoying himself being beaten up as often as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so so, he, so he, he, his attitude did add a lot to the character. You can't argue with that. And from what you say about wanting more time and what have you, the constraints, I don't really feel, until you get sort of late, perhaps later on, stuff like Andorra, I don't feel those constraints betray themselves on the screen. I mean, no, when... I, I agree with you entirely. And I think that's the advantage we have, isn't it, as viewers? We don't peep behind that curtain and get mm. frustrated. And as you say, I don't see episodes where I'm thinking, that's rushed. You mentioned Boston Square. It's very dull. But it would have been dull had they taken a month over it. None of those great episodes, the other ones, I feel, ended up you know, um, being constrained by time. You don't, we don't feel that, do we? No, because I think, you know, there's for 50 minutes, there's a lot packed into those, the majority of those scripts and stories. And I would agree with you that probably 23, 24 are absolutely fantastic. You know, there's a few clunkers in there. In the hit rate of that out of 30, I think that's really pretty good compared to some of the other ITC shows, you know, like 30 of the champions where they've got three episodes based in a submarine and three episodes based in a jungle set, you know, blimey. So, we get um, great variety here. No, sorry. Oh, yeah. What I like about another factor is the production design. The production values are, are relatively high. I mean, watching Day of Execution, Mariocchi, 
you look at you look at that flat that's a beautiful flat i am so envious of that flat that they give mcgill in there the split level thing but then you look at the back cloth and you realize the back cloth is actually a picture of the natural history museum they, they bothered enough to put an actual London building there. And when you come back to that back cloth in the evening, not only do they, when they change the angle of it in the dark, they've even done little cut out, lit up windows. That, that's the sort of degree of care was taken even on a limited budget. But in terms of the budget, obviously, Sid was saying, because I asked him about why he brought so many Ealing staffers over with him. And he said, you, so you've got to have these experienced film people to bring these things in on time, on budget, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I was just going to quickly say about the sets there. You're absolutely right. But there's a, such a variety in, well, the sets that they made. You know, when you look at the smoky club in Sweet Sue, it's all a bit shabby, but it's great. Whereas mm-hmm. if you look at all the glitters, all the sort of panache of the sort of, upper class club and you know whether we're all having that big dinner party gala thing you know so the variety of sets and how well they dress them superb well, again, the, the, the whisper, I, I have huge admiration for how they set up that African village, which I know mm. was at Pinewood, wasn't it, I think. Yep. But um, it feels, I'm happy to believe that I am there in Africa and there is a plantation house just behind and here are the huts where the people in the village live. I'm not constantly thinking this is just uh, in the backyard at Pinewood or whatever. Yeah, and the, the other thing on the sets, <laughs> follow on from you, Jazz, is that attention to detail for the slight for the smallest scene when you look at the when Willard's leaving from the airport they set up that beautiful little reconstruction of a bit of Heathrow or whatever as they see it and it's just for three or four lines when he takes the telephone call and yet it looks wonderful as I was saying earlier there are episodes that reflect the prisoner the episode in question is who's mad now Freddie Francis if you look at that, I think that is the most cinematic thing. And it's the episode of the series which most leans into a sort of fantasy style that might be the girl who was death. You've got the fog effects. And what I love particularly is that first phone call that uh, Jason's wife takes on her own. As she steps out of the room to answer the phone, he's got a slight fisheye lens on there. And it's just enough to make it disconcerting to the eye. And then you've got things like the fog effect, the different angles he uses, the off-kilter camera, the handheld camera he uses in that episode. And of course, Freddy being Freddy with his then current trade of making horror movies, you've got that nice surreal little scene in the graveyard. And I I think in terms of cinema, because a lot of them were restricted by the technology, not just the technology they're using, but the technology we as we as viewers are getting the output on. So you've got a small box in the house and you've got to do lots of close-ups. I mean, if you consider Chase for a Million, when that was screened in the cinema, some of those close-ups when McGill's delirious, his face must have been huge on that <laughs> cinema screen. But um, they were making that for television. So a lot, a lot of the stuff isn't quite cinematic. We do get a few bits of handheld camera. Peter Duffel is a big plus in the second part, as it were, after that break, when I think they had three or four weeks off. Uh, I think he brings a real style to a lot of the episodes. So, it, I mean, it, it's something which had been used on other shows before, but he'll often shoot through a mirror 
perhaps of a car or something or yeah. in um castle in the clouds which i think is one of the great episodes he, he shoots from inside the girl's sort of um dirty linen cupboard and things and just adding those little extra stylish details that you don't necessarily associate with men in a suitcase yes. but they are there i think in the second part i think they had a slicker production crew didn't they from yep. what i've read for mm -hmm. that final 13 episodes and i do think in some of those it really shows you, you start to get those little polished touches which i love they, they certainly had better, a faster lighting cameraman. But you just reminded me, Rodney, talking of the shots that Peter used. There's that nice little trick shot at the end of Who's Mad Now when Robert Horton hits the mirror and then we get a reverse from the other side of the mirror and that, that's the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But Peter, funnily enough, when, when I was speaking to Peter, he actually refers to the period of working on Man in a Suitcase as his apprenticeship. And he, he loved his time. He thought Richard was a bit of a a pain in the posterior for want of a polite phrase but he said they managed to get along they they, they did the job in the end we've got jerry o'hara in there also as a director he'd done my dad's iconic the hour that never was but i mean i think he does a very good job on the sitting pigeon and again what wonderful locations for that that huge conservatory which i think is cyan park or something isn't it you know, what a, what a fantastic playground for the fight scene at the end of that. And he's yeah. another director who said, I think he, he says in Andrew's book, my favourite, you know, my favourite recollections of Man in a Suitcase is sitting around chewing the fat with Richard. What a beautiful man. I mean, we, we were talking about directors. We obviously haven't mentioned John Glenn. Somebody loses, somebody wins. I think it's probably up there among the great episodes personally in the run and i just think that they almost recreate that east germany really well and the sort of bomb sites and mm -hmm. and then the sort of the the mad dry to the border and even then when the car's on fire he's got to go back for his suitcase and it, it's I, a good just, yeah it's a good script i mean there, there are little nuances as you say when he gets into the car first he taps the suitcase and gives yeah. it a little little smile the, the my little friend suitcase is an entity and it's almost a reflection of man from the dead because it's mcgill being used as a patsy to facilitate another defection i think those directors some of them enjoyed the tension mm -hmm. i know that robert tronson said how much he enjoyed the tension and freddie francis said they never ever fell out for a minute over anything when they were yep. working together yes I think there is, a, I think there's probably something quite exciting because television, it, it lacks that sort of cutting edge you'd get in the theatre where something can go wrong. Well, okay, we can refilm it. Mm -hmm. And I, I get the impression that they're there and they don't quite know what they're going to get from Bradford, yeah. as we said earlier. And that probably does have an exciting side as well as a frustrating side, I would imagine. Yeah, well, Fr Freddie said it was one of the most enjoyable filmed TV series he worked on. And he really, he said, Richard was an absolute joy to work with. He said, anybody who found a problem with him, the problem essentially was that you hadn't gained his trust. Well, I think he had a bullshit detector, didn't he? An mm. inbuilt one. Yeah. And if he thought you were phony as an actor, uh, as a director or anyone else, he wasn't putting up with that. And at the same time, you know, he eulogized about people like Anton Rogers, mm. Colin Blakely, I was just going to say, I thought Duffel's direction on the revolutionaries was fantastic, personally. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. great use of the location of the mill, really sets tension that they're coming to get my girl and the girl, and it's, it's quite claustrophobic in a way. 
Well, I mean, there's an episode, isn't it, where we're quite happy to believe that's a remote mill in Sweden. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm not sitting there thinking that's Hambledon or Henley or whatever. Uh, I'm thinking we're in Sweden and they've got those sort of classic, wonderful 60s cars. I think there's a Volvo and a Saab in it. Mm. I do think a lot of those locations are really interesting ones that they have. Mm -hmm. A little Anton story, as you mentioned his name. I, I, I did uh, write to Anton. and they, they got on like a house on fire. They, they were fine. And Anton's performance in variations is excellent. I mean, he switches from the, the mad Russian romantic sort of semi-poet character to the harassed agent at the flick of a switch, and he's really very good. But he did say when they were playing the chess game, he was sitting there waiting opposite Richard, and he looked and he looked and he thought, he's tried. And so he did the usual thing of sort of an under the breath prompt and Richard just looked at him and said I hadn't made my move yet I felt personally variation was too long I have to mm -hmm. say I think it would have been better if it was a single episode I think there was quite a lot of padding in it yes um, but I do realize why they did that you know that was already a plan that they would make a two-part episode and then they could edit it and make it into a cinema, uh, cinematic release. I think one yeah. of the problems yeah. is he has such a good rapport with Anton Rogers that you miss Anton in the second part. I was going to say, once uh, Anton Rogers is sort of bumped off, that's it really, isn't it? It gets a bit, yeah. And the bit on the boat I find really slow. And... Yeah, Ep episode one loses pace as soon as he starts to arrange the travel and the bit on the boat, there, there are some interesting touches in it, but yeah, it does drag. And you do wish... It could have been a bit tighter. The stunt guys, George Leach, when I spoke to him, he said, I took him to one side and, and said to him, look, you've got to come and do your fights, rehearse your fight scenes, because it's a risk to mm -hmm. you and it's a risk to the other actors. And as we know, he chipped Larry Martin's tooth in Dead Man's Shoes. And Richard wasn't listening. So on the quiet, George instructed one of his boys, inverted commas, to, to give Richard a little tap, just so that he would learn the lesson. And needless to say, thereafter, Richard always attended his fight scene rehearsals. Frank Mayer said the same to me when I spoke to him about Man in a Suitcase. He said that Bradford refused to rehearse the fight scene. And then when it came to the fight scene, he actually punched him. And then mm -hmm. Frank let it go, thinking like, you know, he's new to the system. He doesn't know it. And then there was another scene where he had to do, and Bradford did the same. And he, <laughs> Frank said he had a word with him. And mm -hmm. Frank's way of having a word with someone was usually like, <laughs> giving him a punch back yeah you I know mean, and then Darren, saying like don't do that again yeah Darren Nesbitt said that the first thing when I asked Darren if he remembered his time on Man in a Suitcase his first words were highly uncomplimentary about Richard because of his fighting style so what about his car then we can't really not talk about this series and think about how unglamorous his Hillman imp is or uh, he does drive a Herald in one episode at least he doesn't drive the imp sometimes in london and i wonder if sometimes it was just a practical thing so day of execution he's driving a much bigger car but he's mm. got to put donald sutherland in the back drunk at the beginning now yeah. were they looking at that and thinking there's no way you're getting him into the back <laughs> of an imp yeah because I, mean, I think it, the car is underused. It's used in 10 episodes of the 30. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. you're not going to get it when he's going to Rome or whatever. But there are quite a lot of London-based episodes or yeah. countryside ones where they don't use it. 
And I would have liked to have seen it in all of them because it's a masterstroke. I, I think he enjoyed it. It's, it's a discreet car. It's a city car. It's a nippy runabout. But my biggest bugbear about this is the number of times Richard doesn't drive it. And we've got that bloody awful driving double. And, and some of the shots are, are even more obvious now you've got Blu-ray. And I will tell you the, the small story from um, Richard's driving, because obviously being an American, he's used to driving automatics. And he comes over to his, here to this little hick village at Pinewood. They're giving him this tiny little car, which he, lo he loved. I think he loved the car. It, it, it was, as you say, synonymous with McGill, synonymous with the suitcase. It was small. It was discreet. It, there was nothing flash about it. There was nothing flash about the McGill character. But he couldn't drive geared cars. So Sid's secretary gave him a crash course in driving around car park number one in Pinewood. But I don't, I don't, think, I don't think it took off because you only really see him driving off-road. You see him driving in the main avenue at Pinewood and you see him driving a little bit on a drive in uh, SA and Evil. But other, other than that, he keeps, properly keeps away from it. You know, I don't think he, he talked to them. But it he is drove a it in, He stroke, drove it in it? which way did he go, McGill, though? Right at the start, he, he turns up at that petrol station, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. Sorry, at Burnham. Yes, thank you, yeah. thank you for reminding me. Yes. Yeah, because I thought, I mean, I, I love that episode personally, and Donald Sutherland's back, and I think it's, it's a really interesting little script, that one. But uh, yeah, the, the car, I mean, I, I like it. I, I've, I, you're, you're right there. I agree with both of you there, where you say it's small, discreet, matches the suitcase. And I, I like the fact that it's kind of a bit out there, a bit unusual, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. Good choice, whoever made that choice. Yeah, but if, if, you, if you drove IMPS at that time and you knew their track record, you probably might not agree. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Awful, aren't they? But there I we mean, go. You, you, ju you just mentioned Donald Sutherland, Jazz, yep. and it, it struck me that one of the things I love, and I think it's proof of a really good script, is both in that episode and with Colin Blakely in The Whisper. They don't meet till the last few minutes. You mm. kept those two stars, the two big heavyweights apart, yeah. and then you bring them together. And that's quite daring because I imagine when you've got someone of even a young Donald Sutherland, you, and he'd obviously played a major part in the first episode, you, you really want to bring, there must be a temptation to bring them together earlier. And I just love mm. the fact that a bit like a great Greek tragedy, they only come together sort of right at the end. Well, if, if you, I mean, to follow on from that, if you look at Day of Execution, you've got a huge star and a brilliant actor, T.P. McKenna. And that, that episode is all about paranoia, tension, fear. It's a slow burn episode, but you don't really notice that the pace drags. It is so well done. Oh, no. And you only get T.P. in the very final part <laughs> of the last act. He's, mm -hmm. he's, he's essentially a throwaway. Mm. But... As you, as you say, that is, that is brilliant. You've got somebody there up in the rankings. He's got star billing, and then you hardly see him. But, it is, but when you do see him, it's a good ending to the story. Well, I mean, yeah. that is probably the iconic Man in a Suitcase episode, isn't it, in many mm -hmm. respects? And, and that's a mixture of the scarecrow, the sort of the whole Mariocchi thing, you know, the wreath, that Malatov cocktail at the end. You mentioned mm -hmm. his wonderful flat earlier, and what an apartment mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. Wonderful car. Before you are. Yeah, and the wonderful um, car scene, uh, car chase around Kingston on 10. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, Kingston, I remember um, it. Where, yeah, what a fab bit of filming that is yeah, yeah. That, that makes it one of my top top 10 ones because I, I do love seeing old kingston 
because yeah. I, I lived down there for a while and shopped down there and Bentle it's Center. And it's that Bentle's almost yeah. art deco yeah. front isn't it? It, it it's great but i think that episode shows you how subtle men in a suitcase could be because it's yes. the chiming of the clock the whirring each time uh, the lift is coming up. His paranoia each time someone comes to the door. And then, of course, the yep. one time, and that is a real Philip Broadley moment, it's life insurance card, isn't it, that's coming yeah, through the door. Yeah. You, you've got a double there. That's a, from Charlie Crichton. That's really a Hitchcock moment because you've got, if oh, you yeah. re remember the thing in, in, I think it was Sabotage with the boy on the, on the bus with the bomb, you've got the elevator, then you've got the tension, and you've got, first, you've got the newspaper. And you, and you get the relief of the newspaper and then you suddenly get that tension again. It's a double Hitchcock moment yeah. because, like you say, you get the, the humour then, the levity of the life insurance card coming through. And, yeah. and that's one of those episodes where I think you really appreciate how wonderful Albert Elms' incidental music is. I know it wasn't written specifically for that episode, mm. but it is just beautiful. It yeah. builds. It, 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 it so much enhances the tension. It, it, it really does. It, it is. I, I would argue that that is the best studio-bound episode. Don't forget the yeah. telephone ringing it as well, because yeah. that that <laughs> telephone. It watch that, and you are you're there with him when that telephone rings. Is he going to pick it up? You know, mm. and you don't know whether it's going to be his girlfriend or is going to be the people who are after him. I love mm. that tension. It, really it, well it, done. And yeah. there's a wonderful moment early on there where. Um, he comes down and answers the phone and then um, Willard opens his eye as if to tell you, yeah, I, there's something dodgy about me. Don't trust me because I know mm. what's going on. But that, I that, just that love is, little moments like that. That is the brilliance of, I, I think Sutherland outstrips the performance in which way by miles in Day of Execution because you can see that guilt and that turmoil in yeah. him all the time yeah and i mean then, he's he's much more of a cartoon cutout isn't he in the other episode he's just mm. you know, grinning baddie and he looks wonderful in his leathers and on his mm -hmm. motorbike but he hasn't got to do much mm. whereas this willard he's really got to... he's, a, he's a he's a real catalyst to, to, to the events around him yeah. and then the other element of um to come back to mcgill again we get mcgill's concern for moira and he's trying to put her off him basically because mm -hmm. at the start he tells her not to form a long-term relationship with him take it day by day and then at the end he tries to protect her and another good point about this in terms of the character is she says i'm not afraid and mcgill instantly responds with i am and yeah. that is that is something you wouldn't see from your typical itc hero I think she yeah. says, I'm not made of bone china, doesn't she, at one point? Mm, yeah. And yet, and yet, what's the last image we get in the whole episode? It's her literally running for her life. That is a brilliant close, yeah. a brilliant closing shot, yes. And credit to Rosemary Nicole's there, because she's often sort of, well, not forgotten about, but people, you know, they say she was in Department S, but she wasn't very good. She, mm. she proved that she could act in that episode, for sure. Certainly did, yeah, I wouldn't but, disagree. But she is, again, one of these uh, sort of the character, as it were, one of those 60s girls who's lost, isn't she? She's obviously got independent means. She's living in a mm -hmm. very smart muse apartment. Mm -hmm. She doesn't work. She's tried everything. She says, oh, I tried dance. I tried social action, I think she says at one mm -hmm. point. And yep. that didn't work. There are all these very attractive, clearly intelligent, articulate young women who were just wasting their lives in swinging London, aren't they? Are they the last of the debutantes? They are really, aren't they? They probably are, yeah. 
think so. You know? But and they're not they're... dolly birds. No, they're not. I, I mean, Judy Geeson, uh, or is it Geeson? I never know how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Her mm. character in Sweet Sue, she's intelligent. And McGill says to her at one point, you know, is there anything else to you? And she says, oh, I don't know, which tells us she does know, but she's decided to ignore it. it it's almost wasted lives, a bit like Jane Merrow's character in The Bridge as well. Um, you know, there are a lot of attractive, intelligent young women who just seem to be existing off daddy's money. Yeah, yep. poor Jane Merrow. I felt so sorry for her in that episode, having her act against Rodney Buse. <laughs> if there's one episode that I cannot bear, it is The Bridge. So I'm going to skip on that one, if that's all right with you guys. Yeah, but I think, I think Rodney's comment is a good one. Jane Merrow is sort of so typical of that swinging London look, you, you know, running around town trying to find kicks and yeah. whatever. And she basically. says, I've heard, doesn't she say to McGill, I've heard every chat up line there is. And you're thinking, mm. jeepers, you're 20 and you've heard it all. Yeah. And mm. Sue is about 20 in it and she's heard everything. They're, they're, they're tired out and burnt out already, aren't they? That's, that's, it's almost yeah. a second jazz age. You know, it's almost like a second Gatsby type. Well, we've done all the parties. We've done all the drinks. What's next? You mentioned a Boston Square earlier. If I could just quickly mention that. And Richard made a point about this, and we touched on it very briefly about recycled scripts. I always had the feeling that the Boston Square felt like a rejected Danger Man script. And I think that really quite shows, and that's probably why we're not really very complimentary about it. Actually, I don't mind it, to be honest. It's not terrible. It's just dull, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if you put Peter Arne to one side, and, you know, I like him, mm. you know, there are some quite dull guest actors in that one. There's no, <laughs> it, it feels like a sort of half-developed idea, doesn't it? And then they needed, yeah. they needed something quickly, and it was just yeah. like, right, we'll fill in the lines here. And but, that's quite a nice location in that. They'd film mm-hmm. that on the Isle of Wight, and the Corfu mm-hmm. um, little port is the Isle of Wight. And, and it all looks quite attractive. It just, as you yeah, say, well, it's a half-developed... As, as I said earlier, you'd look at that and you wouldn't think the same bloke directed that who set the style for the prisoner, because it is so leaden. But moving on from leaden, we should talk about positives, because I wanted to say about how great some of these scripts were and some mm-hmm. of the writers. I mean... I particularly like Edmund Ward's Web Before Spiders, Burden of Proof, which I think is absolutely brilliant, which we haven't mentioned yet. Dead Man's Shoes, which I really like. Sitting Pigeon, great. They're all, they're all four of his are superb, aren't they? Yeah, Burden of Proof, though. What an episode. I, I think the more times you watch it, you see more things. So, yep. for example, Wolf Morris's character, He's not simply an evil torturer. I mean, he is treated in a completely racist way. Mm. Even the mm-hmm. chauffeur who drops him off at the embassy refers to him as a mulatto or something, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get the feeling that the president in charge, who I think has been Harvard educated or something, hasn't he? And doesn't understand the people at all. Does Wolf Morris actually have the people's interests at heart? And he just thinks the end justifies the means. I don't know. Mm. And yet you then got that demonic moment when he is brushing his hair with, uh, with, with, with the guy's brush Perhaps while he's being tortured in the next room. Yeah. John Gregson. I think what you get with Burden of Proof is you get a brilliant script and you match it with a complete commitment to that script by those players. 
I mean, um, you know, I think uh, you've got four or five seriously good guest actors. You've even got Delgado playing like one scene, haven't you? In, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Nicola Paget's great in that as well. Mm-hmm. And like I say, John Gregson is just superb in that. His devotion, yeah. his devotion to that sort of cause that he has to do, the work for the president. I, mm-hmm. I just think that is such a wonderful performance. It is. And again, you've got, you were talking about um, Web with Four Spiders. You've got another excellent performance from Ray McNally. Yeah. That is because lovely. He, one. He, is so, he is so repugnant when he's drunk, isn't he? <laughs> he's pretty repugnant. <laughs> when he's finally <laughs> let that face down and he yeah. says, What are you looking at? And, and we're looking at the same thing McGill is, as in, you know, it's, I just think that's, he's wonderfully disgusting in that. He's yeah. incredibly patronising when he's sober to poor old McGill. He pays the price for it. Yeah, there's a lovely line in that uh, uh, where McGill is talking, I can't remember the actor's name, when the actor says to him, no one escapes the machine, McGill. Not Simon you. Oates. Simon yeah. Oates. Yeah. Not Simon me. Oates. Not Norbert. No one. That little line is kind of the crux of the whole episode, isn't it? And in the same episode, you, you get a brilliant line from McNally as Norbert who sums up, sums up what he thinks McGill is, a hired man sweeping up the dirt in other people's yeah. lives. <laughs> Brilliant lines. And what I also like about that is the frisson between Martha and McGill. That thing when he's lying on the couch and he orders breakfast. Yeah, he orders yeah. breakfast. You, you can morning. feel the spark and you're thinking in different circumstances, these two would have got together. I really like Edmund Ward's scripts. But I think Philip Broadley came in strong with his free as well in... Day of Execution, Sweet Sue, and Find the Lady. I think Day of Execution is probably in the top three for me, easily. We should also talk about the directors, though, because um, there's that Ealing connection that Smudge mentions that Sid got a lot of Ealing people um, involved. Peter Duffel, I thought, was great. Freddie Francis was great. Robert Tronson, Charlie Crichton. I mean, Herbert Wise, I thought, was great for all that glitters, but just didn't come back. He actually does a few playful shots. I can remember in the teaser when they're looking for the boy and you, you see the view from the other end as the policemen are looking in these pipes, etc. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's yeah. quite happy to put some nice little touches in there as I was well. going to say that's a lovely little touch, yeah. Apart from perhaps the Boston Square, I don't think we suffer any real directorial catastrophes. And I mean, in terms of guest actors, we've got some, you know, we've got a pretty good run here of super guest actors, I think. Although McGill is, um, as a character, is pretty serious, there are elements to him where you do see a more humorous side. Yeah, I think he can do humour. I, I yes. think one of the problems is the, f- the first two attempts they had I- in the series at doing lighter, slightly satirical episodes are two of the turkeys. So for me, Jigsaw Man, I also think that um, the man who stood still personally, I think is fairly awful. But I think later on in the season, um, in the series, an episode such as castle in the clouds if you look at his rapport with gay hamilton's character and a lot of the humor in that episode you've got gerald flood who's ex eaton the character is and he just has no idea what's going on in the real world at all and miguel keeps saying to him you know when are you gonna actually work out the coincidence it doesn't exist and all of this and he does have a real lightness of touch Mm -hmm. often with the female characters 
but but also as I say, you know, when he when you say him about him smiling, as soon as he smiles, he lights up that whole screen. Just as when he pounces, he lights it up. Yeah, there there are little lines all over the place. He, he does irony when ironic humor when he's first confronted by Martha in Web with Four Spiders and she tries to block him from seeing Norbert. He, he breezes, breezes past her and said, you've been like the breath of spring. So I think one should uh, dispel any myths that the man in the suitcase is devoid of humour. His relationships with ladies, you know, I mean, one of the things that he did like the female actresses, he said in his interview, he's tended to spend lots of his time hanging out with them because he found them a lot easier than the male actors who were sent for episodes. But there were some wonderful guest leading ladies in this show. Felicity Kendall, whenever there's a repertoire of her career, they seem to forget that she was in Blind Spot, and I thought she did really well in that. Well, she's perfect. I mean, she is so adorable as a character in that episode. And they have such a wonderful, like, gentle rapport. Okay, it sort of borders on romantic. And I think they have a beautiful rapport in what I personally don't think is a brilliant episode. McGill does proper romance as well, though. I mean, you look at the relationship with Tycho in variations, and, and I come back to Stanley Greenberg's dialogue, allowing them to play such good scenes. You get so much backstory in that episode. They do play it so naturally. And the, the concern that Tycho has for him. Somebody loses, somebody wins. I think it's probably up there among the great episodes. I, I think that's, there's a r remarkable chemistry in that episode between Bradford and uh, Jacqueline Pierce. But you also learn more character backstory because you learn that Klinger, Jacqueline Pierce, was the only person McGill thought believed in him and, and sort of kept him sane because yeah, she sent, sent him a Christ Christmas card every year. Mm. It's, it's yeah. a very good script. I would agree. It's a fab episode. Underrated, I think, that one. And again, it's very different, isn't it? There is almost a Bond-esque, I'd say better than Bond in, in a weird way, but because it's got more emotion to it. But I mean, it's mm -hmm. very different, again, from any other Man in a Suitcase episode. I, I think, you know, if you drew up your top 15 of the 30 episodes, you've probably got 15 quite different episodes to each other. You know, The Whisper mm. is completely different mm. from anything else in that whole run. And, and how daring is that script? I what mean, a script. This is something we haven't touched on. This is an aspect of McGill we haven't touched on. His character judgment. 99% of the time, it's perfect. Odd lapses. But the whisper is such a, a strong demonstration of his judgment and his faith in Alfred Porter. Very, well, very good scripting. Well, he says, doesn't he? He says, I, I know who this guy was. I don't know who he is. So I'm not going to judge him yet. Yeah. 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 Which is wonderful. Really nicely done. And isn't he asking us to do the same thing? And we do, don't we? It's a wonderful... I just think in an ITC script, to take someone who not only is a serial, well, is a mass killer, but yep. admitted enjoying doing it, mm. to actually be able to believe at the end that he's almost saintly, that's a hell of a script. It's got to be a pretty good performance from the actor. And Does it get better as a guest performance than that, Colin Blakely? I don't think so. Yeah, probably not, to be honest. The moment of punching Patrick Allen's lights out near the end as well, it's great. Yeah, and his wife's a real Lady Macbeth character. And yeah. her snobbery as well. I mean, she's appalled the fact they might have to carry their own luggage from the helicopter. It's like, what's happened? <laughs> Never yeah. mind these people haven't been paid. 
Yeah, there's another one that's set in Africa, isn't there? No Friend of Mine, which I don't think works quite as well, to be honest. It's it, an episode I've always struggled with because I missed it on the first run and, and I took years to find it again. Nobody had a copy for whatever reason. And, and I think it's just, it is one of those episodes that just doesn't gel. I also think McGill's slightly out of place in it. I know he'll say, like, he'll take any sort of job for money, but I even think, like, in that one, does he need the money to do that? Well, I know. guess, I mean, Dead Man's Shoes is another one where you've got to question why he's taken money off someone he's never met over the phone, taken the cash and is mm. now in this village. And um, I think it's Gerald Sim, isn't it, as the policeman who says to him, you know, don't you have any morals? You know, don't you actually look into who your clients are? And, and they're two rare sort of slip-ups by McGill, considering he does have a moral compass. I do like Dead Man's Shoes, so mainly because of the location work. Yeah, um, it's great location work. Story is mainly second in that one, I think, and location is probably first. I mean, I love all the fact he's walking around Fulmer and, you know, the locals are eyeing him up and sort of waiting for him on the, the back yeah. path to give him a good kick in. The Pigeon Air thing is a wonderful set. You just cot. know the first time you go in, yeah, the dovecot, sorry, you know the first time you go in there that there's going to be a fight later on <laughs> and that that sort of wheeling it's round ladder piece. is going to be used, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a real but, Chekhov's gun or whatever moment. You know it's going to come back. But it's it's nice not to be on a backlot redressed street like we would be for the Saint or the Champions, the where the street was redressed so many times. It really is quite a difference. And the joy of the blue, or the joy in inverted commas of the Blu-ray, is uh, you notice that when he walks into the double-fronted shop at Denham, there's a load of people in the background watching the filming from the shop. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is one of the real positives for this show. Because it was at Pinewood and not at Elstree, like you say, it's not the Elstree backlot redressed from the champions, the St. Randall and Hopkirk Department S. So, you know, it, it kind of comes a bit of a fun game, actually, to sort of see where it's coming up again. And this, that hall, what's the name of the hall at Pinewood? Heatherton Hall. I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful building, isn't it? You're, you're happy to believe it's where the, the priests are training in Whisper or whatever else. It's a fabulous building. I mean, yes, the Finders Keepers village set takes some hammering, but they do use good redressing and a lot of different angles. And there, there's not an inch of the Pinewood backlot that isn't exploited. But unless you're a diehard fan, you don't really notice it on first, on first look or second look. Just a little funny snippet from the location thing, or the use of Pinewood rather. When he, he comes to the end of the chase from the anchor in Man from the Dead, when he's chased back from the anchor pub, he turns out in front of that group of pallets stacked against the wall. And that's the same group of pallets you see uh, Sean Connery drive past in the Aston Martin in Goldfinger. And they stayed there till at least the early 90s, just sitting in exactly the same <laughs> spot. But the, the thing is, yeah, you've got a liberal use of locations but I don't think you really notice that strongly when you come back to a studio-bound episode because the scripts are so good. The, the thing keeps your attention. Mm -hmm. Richard Bradford keeps your attention. He's got that magnetism on the screen. I was going to say about Richard in more later years, how he looked back on the show. And he was very open to people talking to him about it, you know. And he was very honest about his time in England and how he behaved and perhaps he didn't handle it very well. He was very keen to explain to me that they wanted it a bit to be a bit sort of Sam Spade and he didn't want that. He wanted it to be as real as it could be. And he made himself difficult with directors and actors and actresses and stuff. And, you know, particularly Rose Tobias Shaw, as we mentioned. But I think when he looked back on it, 
he had a great fondness for this show. I think this show is a lot better than he remembered it. And and he's a lot better than he remembers it. And maybe it is that old thing of a fish knows nothing of water. To me, the saddest thing is that this is a guy really starting out on his career. Uh, this is the highlight of his career, you know, and he says that when he's retired, when I look back, you know, um, I, I think it's quite sad that he didn't go on and do other things, you know, as in big things. Can I sort of pick you up, Jazz, on that? Did he mention the Variety interview? He didn't mention the Variety letter he wrote. We do know what he said. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, basically there's no coming back for a second series at any cost. You know, mm-hmm. they could pay me half a million bucks and I'm still not going. Which I think was rather hot-headed of him at the time. And I don't think he probably thought about that particularly well. Can I sort of give you something that you may not know? Well, you probably won't know because it's, it's from the Sid angle. That variety interview caused considerable distress with Sid, with the crews. And Sid actually wanted to reply. But this is where you do get influence from the top. Lou Grade told him not to. And of course, on the back of that, when I was asking about, was anything ever considered for the future for Man in a Suitcase? And he said, no, there there wasn't even a thought. No scripts were commissioned. There was nothing left over. Absolute zero. Well, Um, considering the show was about to be shown and was at ABC in America, it was pretty stupid timing, to be honest. But mm -hmm. again, maybe some of that was frustration. Maybe some of it is naivety. And uh, as you said, Jazz, I don't even think had things gone swimmingly between all of them, there would have been a second series because Mm -hmm. I think by then this was the way. We do a series and then we come up with another idea and we do another one and... In closing on that point, Mrs. Bradford did actually write back to Sid and apologise for Richard's behaviour and said essentially what you were saying. He's been a bit hot-headed and impetuous. But he said, I was an idiot. If I hadn't been naive and young and inexperienced, if I'd realised what I was getting here, I was the freest I'd ever be in my whole career. And that always makes me sad when I read that. Let's sort of sum up where we are then with Man in a Suitcase and why we love this show. Perhaps I could start with you, Rodney. It's a mixture of things. I think it is the fact that the show plugs into Swinging London with the sort of satirical side of that, but also, you know, just those those wonderful locations. How can you not enjoy a show as they're breezing through St. James's Park or by the River Thames or whatever else? I, I love that Swinging London feel. It's the variety because we've got so many different types of script from really seriously dark, as we've said, to one of my favorites, Castle in the Clouds, which is a a satirical souffle. As so often in ITC landed, the fantastic guest um, characters, uh, actors. But I do think probably more than most shows, a lot of it comes down to Richard Bradford. Uh, It comes down to the fact that he is unlike anyone else I've ever seen. I don't know what to expect from him. And I've seen all the episodes 20 times and I still expect to turn on for 21st time and he'll do something different because that's what he's like. And I like what he brings to the character. I like McGill. I feel a connection with him and with Richard Bradford. If I could take one onto a desert island, it would probably be Why They Killed Nolan, which I don't think is the greatest script. I just love all the London location shooting there. I, I love mm. the peacocks. I love the fight scenario at the end. Um, that, to me, sort of epitomizes Men in a Suitcase, which uh-huh. I do feel is at its best in London. I think this show has been so criminally underrated for half a century. 
I still don't think it's really been given the praise and perhaps been re-reviewed. And so I still feel here we are in 2020 and um, Man in the Suitcase is undervalued. I might be wrong. Smudge? Um, just to pick up on Rodney's last point, I think it's developed since the 80s and, and it has come more into parity almost with The Prisoner. For me personally, as, as with Rodney, it's a social capsule. It shows London at the peak of its powers, swinging 60s, even if the rest of the country didn't swing. We all <laughs> bought, bought into that myth, didn't we? And we loved it and we love to see it. And, and, and it does epitomize that period in time. The drive of the show is the man, basically, the McGill. We, we all grew up with Simon Templer. I, I sat watching Simon Templer with my grandfather. We loved it. But you come to McGill and you've got a totally different type of hero. For a start, you've got a flawed hero, a hero who's got foibles, failings, and feelings. And no matter what you may think of him personally, no matter what his other performers thought of him personally or the crew thought of him, the man has presence. When he's on the screen, you watch, you are drawn to him. He is head and shoulders above the run-of-the-mill ITC heroic characters. He stands level with McGowan in terms of that sort of idol type of figure, if, if you want to use that expression. We've got a show that doesn't betray the production values. You don't think about it being turned around in nine days. You don't think about it being turned around on a limited budget. You've got some very, very fine scripts. You've got some clunkers, admittedly, but you, I mean, you can't have uh, wheat without chaff, can you? It's the sort of show that grabs you. And I, and I think its reputation has grown. I think it's probably still not quite at the mark of The Prisoner, but it, it isn't far behind it. And, and, and I, I think it's, it's fascinating. I've, I've crunch watched several episodes before we did this podcast and the show still appeals to me as much as ever. I think for me, I like the fact that this is really when ITC go into colour and they get it right. It's beautifully shot. It's really well directed. There are some fab sets and scenes in this where McGill is so great. Having met Richard and worked with him, he was a complex man, but he really gave his all in this. I think you're right that it's been reassessed sort of since that 80s repeat. And of course, it was on BBC Two as well in the early 90s that we haven't mentioned, which again brought in new, uh, a new generation of fans. I guess it will always struggle against The Prisoner because of McGowan's status as an actor in the 60s. He was very well known, whereas when Richard Bradford got this role, he was relatively unknown. Like you, I crunch watch some of the episodes to do this podcast, and some of them are absolutely fantastic. Like I say, I always loved Burden of Proof. When I watch that again, even though I've seen it, I don't know how many times, I still think that is one of the best pieces of television to come out of ITC. Richard's honesty as well, post Man in a Suitcase, when you read about a person in interviews or so, and this is before I met him, saying the scripts were naff or could have been better, this, that and the other. That's quite an honest thing that I think that was refreshing because lots of actors just sort of never really sort of said that or I'd not come across it. And I think, like you say, swinging 60s London that we touched on at the start, this is the epitome of that for ITC. It doesn't get any better. This is such a magnificent time capsule of that moment. This is the show that captures it. So I just want to say thanks to you, Rodney, for your usual sitting in and chatting with me with this. Also to you, Smudge, for agreeing to join us on this and all your brilliant input. 
to those people who are listening, thank you so much for all the positive feedback you've been giving us. Sorry about the delay between episode two and three. That's me, technical problems, blowing up Mac. But um, we'll be back very shortly with another episode uh, where we'll be discussing the persuaders. So it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much, Jazz. Thanks for persuading me and inviting me in. Uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, and, and a pleasure as always. And it, it was lovely to chat with Smudge as well. Get an expert on the show in to chat away with is brilliant. And on that note, we say goodbye. You have been listening to episode three, Man in a Suitcase, of the ITC Entertain the World podcast, hosted by Jazz Wiseman with Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. This podcast was made on location and edited and produced by Jazz Wiseman. It was a bitter and twisted limited production for the morning after.